Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing The Serpent's Shadow. How you doing today, Jane? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm kind of tired, but I am excited to talk about these chapters. You? You know, pretty similar. Uh, I just had a very nice meal of, you know, I was, I'm living uh, elegantly. I'm living like a rich woman. Uh-huh. I had a meal of uh, two day old rice, uh, some frozen nice. chicken nuggets mixed with like a sweet soy sauce and some ketchup and some mayo. Uh, so I'm, I'm just kind of living like a, like a queen. Yeah. I mean, I, for my dinner, ate some uh, day old chili con carne that I'd kept in a tub in the fridge. So. We're both we're both uh, living the high life off that Patreon money. We're living like pharaohs, if you if you want <laughs> if you want to split it like that. And actually, uh, speaking of I don't know podcast, before we like get into it, I I would love to make a sincere request to our listeners. Oh, uh, as we've now passed a year of podcasting, but there, one one special one strange little thing is that we've never actually gotten uh, a review. Uh, of our podcast, except for True. one, but that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I we we would love if if you went to your podcasting app of choice and just like you know very quickly doesn't have to take a long time just go to your app and write a little five star review. Uh, say whatever you want, and uh, we maybe we'll even read it on the podcast if it's like funny, or yeah. you know makes our hearts warm. Uh, we would really appreciate it. It help us out a lot. It would. Uh, if you would like to um, quote tweet dunk on Donald Trump in your uh, review, as we requested back in our first episode. Yeah, yeah, that is that's that's true, huh? <laughs> Which, oh wow, it was a different time yeah, back then. That aged horrifically. Like immediately between, reco- between recording it and releasing it. Never mind now. God no, yeah, it's 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 absolute. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jane, I believe you very nicely wrote us the summaries this week. Uh, I, I, I believe that I wrote them spitefully and under duress. <laughs> Not really. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. I, I trapped you in my little basement. <laughs> I was put in the cube once more. That's right. So, chapter 12, Carter. Bulls with freaking laser beams. Carter, Zia, Setney, and Big Boat arrive at the location of the Book of Thoth, Serapium. While Bloodstained Blade starts fixing the beach ship, the three non-Axe people head into the temple. Setney explains that he used to run this place, and that the massive coffins strewn around the place don't contain people, but cows, who in ancient times acted as avatars for Osiris during special occasions, and were well treated until they were slaughtered and mummified at age 25. The trio head further into the catacombs, disarming traps as they go. Eventually, they reach a wall that Setney has to carry out a complex disenchantment on. And while he does that, he drops Zia in the shit by telling Carter about the the quote-unquote beetle that she has to keep under control. This turns out to be Kepri, Ra's scarab incarnation, who Zia is wearing as a necklace. She refuses to say why she has it. Carter privately speculates that Ra might be treating her like some sort of high priestess, before Setne finishes his charm. Through the wall lies a large library, where Setney is a little too eager to get the kids to enter, as he mysteriously alludes to a timer having been set off. Setney also reveals that his father was Ramses the Great, technically making him a distant relation of Carter's on his mum's side, which he's not pleased to discover. Setney reveals some pretty deep-rooted daddy issues, and also taunts Carter with their similarity, as he's also in Julius's shadow. He wonders why he hasn't seized the throne of the pharaoh yet, and before Carter can answer, the timer goes off. A bull statue in the centre of the room springs to life, and Setney tells Carter and Zia that they have to distract it while he retrieves the book, as only he can get it without being vaporised by the security curses. Carter and Zia flee to a different chamber, where Carter attempts to negotiate with the bull since it's technically an avatar of Osiris. It shoots a laser at him in reply, but Zia is able to control it with fire magic, leading to a bit of a stalemate. Carter tries his combat avatar, but gets immediately owned, and Zia has to use Kepri, the beetle necklace, 
uh, has to use his magic to save him. Speaking in a voice that's not her own as she vaporizes the bull. This totally wipes her and Carter has to drag her to safety, meeting Setney in the hall. Carter takes her back to the boat and is so concerned about her safety that he gives Setney permission to give orders to Bloodstained Blade, thinking that it's just to set their next destination. Unsurprisingly, what Setney actually does is order Bloodstained Blade to kill Carter. Chapter 13, Sadie. A friendly game of hide and seek, with bonus points for painful death. Sadie and Walt get dumped in a swamp by Isis, so Walt deploys Philip of Macedonius to give them a ride out. They have a conversation about Walt's impending death, where Sadie blows up how chill he's being about it. She thinks Anubis has been feeding him some bullshit about how his death will be absolutely fine, and Walt laughs at this. Before he can explain what he thinks is so funny, they arrive at Saïs. It's covered in bees because the hunter god who lived here, Neith, was also the bee god. They shrink down Philip again and set off into the forest around the ruins. They find Neith waiting for them in combat fatigues with a load of hunting gear. Ready to earnest Hemingway their asses if they don't pass a hunting challenge. The same way she killed the Russian magicians and Apophis demons who already passed through the area. If they win, she'll give them Bez's shadow and fight by their side against Apophis. She transports them into a shadow of the past at night, when the temple was still intact, and sets them off for the hunt. Sadie's plan is to use her and Walt's matching amulets, which allow them to teleport to one another, to continually zip around the area by constantly splitting up, and then teleporting when Neath gets close. Sadie sets off and almost immediately gets caught. Thankfully, Walt teleports her out of danger, and they have a smooch before splitting up again. Sadie also notices that Walt looks better and seems to smell of lotus plants. Sadie manages to run across Neath's temple and decides to go looking for Bez's soul to just try and get it out of the way now since time is a-wasting. As she's on her way in, Walt gets caught and she teleports him to her to save him. Unfortunately, instead of splitting up again, they get distracted when they see Bez's soul and get so caught up trying to grab it that Neath manages to cat to find them before they can split again. Chapter 14 Sadie. Fun with split personalities. Sadie bluffs at Arrow Point, claiming that she's also a great survivalist, banging on Neath not knowing that the Ribena fruit doesn't actually exist, and that Convent Garden is only a bleak hellscape by virtue of being in London. She manages to stall Neath long enough for the challenge to time out and for her and Walt to win. Neath tries to kill them anyway, and Walt very obviously channels Anubis to stop her and hold her to her agreement although Sadie still doesn't figure it out. Neath agrees, but curses Walt as a quote-unquote child of Set, and declares that one day Sadie will be assaulted by a pack of wild jelly babies. They get back to Bez's shadow, but before they can capture it, Anubis himself shows up, carrying a punched ticket with Walt's name on it. Walt collapses and Anubis cradles him, and Sadie briefly worries that she's about to get deathbed cucked by her other love interests. Instead, they both chat about how much they like Sadie, and then Walt captures Bez's shadow in an amulet as his last act on Earth. Doing so makes him suffer from basically total organ failure and he dies, while Sadie tearfully sends Bez's shadow back to him. Anubis finally fuses with Walt, which is still being treated like a big twist, and tells Sadie to head back to the Duart to help Carter, as Anubis has figured out that Setney has laid a trap for him. They'll meet again at the first gnome at sunrise. Sadie, for her part, is freaking out about everything that just happened and flees away from the pair of them into the duart. Chapter 15. Carter. I become a purple chimpanzee. Carter's attempts to stop Bloodstained Blade from killing him are in vain, as he can't override Setney's orders. He tries to protect Zia while the demon attacks him and flees to keep him away from her. Setney is nowhere to be seen, and the crew orb things are freaking out without Bloodstained Blade's directions so the boat is listing in the River of Night. Bloodstained Blade lets slip that his new orders are Kill Carter Kane, take him to the land of demons, make sure it's a one-way trip. The boat is coming up on a waterfall, so Carter aims it at the shore, before trying to yank some weapons from the duart. Surprisingly, he comes up with Ra's crook and flail. He also notices Setney preparing to abscond to the shore with the Book of Thoth manages to bind him with the ribbons of Hathor so that he falls into the river instead. Bloodstained Blade knocks Carter out while he's doing that, and is about to kill him when Sadie clutches it out and incinerates the demon. 
At that moment, the boat hits the shore, flinging Zia and Carter gaily through the air, landing on the beach. After taking a moment to apply some first aid to Carter's broken body, they see the boat finally break apart, with the stern sinking into the river. They also see Setney wiggling across the sand while still bound in the ribbons of Hathor. They sit down and have a meal while watching him struggle, and Zia explains that she is indeed in line to be Ra's host. Because he's so old and powerful, he'll be much more dangerous than other divine magic, but there's no other choice because he's so old and fucked up that he can't start his rebirth cycle. Zia also kisses Carter and says that all the things she likes about him are probably the virtuous qualities that means he can be Pharaoh along with Horus. That's probably why Ra's stuff appear to him. They finish their meal, get up, and take the Book of Thoth from Setni, and consider ditching him. Unfortunately, they can't navigate the land of demons to find Apophis' shadow without him, so they have to release him. He disguises them as demons and they set off. The level of chaos should dissolve them, but Zia's Ra powers keep them together for now. They come across the cliff where Carter's mom was previously and he's worried by the fact that she's no longer there. A few moments later they arrive at the edge of the Sea of Chaos, a roiling ocean of dark magic, with a single jetty stretching out into it with an obelisk on it, Ma'at to hold back the tides. The trio need to navigate along the narrow jetty without falling into the sea to cast a spell that will get them Apophis' shadow. So, what did you think of these chapters? Jane, I have a hypothetical to present to you. Uh Uh-huh. You're, okay, so you're a 13-year-old girl, right? Yep. Uh, and you uh, ha- are in a love triangle with two brooding, mystical boys, very <laughs> sexy, both of them. You're having to go through a lot of like pain and grief because one of them is dying. And uh, you're going through a lot of feelings about like, basically, you're in the middle of trying to process a lot, specifically in the realm of like, how to deal with grief because you've been dealing with a lot of grief lately and like connecting this back to your past like traumas Mm -hmm. and like how to deal with separation um and so you're trying to work these feelings out and you have to watch your uh like boyfriend die in front of you uh and then uh you and then uh he wakes up in your arms and reveals that actually he just did a a, a fusion dance with your other boyfriend (laughs) what do you do um I ask, why the fuck didn't you tell me you were going to do that, you asshole? I completely under, like, okay, but, like, one of the strongest, like, feelings I got in this chapter was, like, number one, wow, I I, I feel like I get Sadie as a character a lot better. Uh-huh. Uh, number two, I am just as pissed off as she is. Like, what the <laughs> fuck, guys? Like, come on. Like, like they, they, they try to lampshade it a bit. Um, they try to be like, oh, you know, you can never get in a word edgeways with Sadie. She's always talking. <laughs> They just but sound like, like assholes. Like, she wasn't talking when she was, like, collapsed on the ground crying because Walt was about to fucking die. That right. might have been a good time to mention it to her. It's like, maybe those two should just date each other. Because it seems like they've been in each other's, like, they've just been dealing with all their own shit, talking to each other, getting to know each other, not really caring about where Sadie's at. I feel like she deserves <laughs> better. Yeah, honestly. Like, I get that they're hot. And unfortunately, but, the Zia thing is also off the table now. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, it's so weird. Like, and also, the problem is, though, with Sadie's, like, newfound irresistible attraction to Walt's feet, she'll never be able to yeah, separate I, herself. Yeah, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck, Rick? <laughs> it's... It, it saying it like that makes it weirder than it actually is. She's, like, looking at his... Like, no, it's, it's pretty like a, weird. It's, it's a little weird. She's like, can't look at his face and they're just like in the silence and he's like about to die and she's just like thinking and she's like trying not to talk to him. And so she's like, just like, oh, what else can I think about? I guess because I'm looking at the ground, I'll describe how, oh no, I think his feet are hot too. Like, I guess that's like, I don't know. Is that normal? I'm not sure. Oh no, his feet are so hot, especially with all the swamp mud in them. That exactly. really adds to the effects. She basically says that. <laughs> But I, I oh like I, I, I like these chapters is is the truth. Yeah, no, they they've got their issues. I don't think they're as good as the last set, but I do think they are like capitalizing on the momentum that the book managed to get there. Definitely. And I think for every like kind of I guess misstep here, there's also something that makes me feel like, oh, a different misstep was avoided. Um oh. like I feel like we 
I, I guess I kind of went over this in my little jokey response, but I feel like now that we've directly connected, like Sadie's feelings on Walt dying to her feel to her unresolved feelings on like her mother's death. I really mm-hmm. can like, I, I I'm glad that there's like that new dimensionality to it because it makes it feel like a more of like a holistic, like a holistic, not just like character trait, but like something that Sadie and in general, like all of these characters are going through. Like, I feel like the themes of the King Chronicles are finally coming to bear in a way. Yeah. Whereas the, I guess, cause like, I mean, the first book was largely about like growing up and becoming an adult like it makes sense that in the in the last book what we'd eventually get to is dealing with death right and like this has kind of been a thing throughout the entire series but i don't want to like do a series autopsy right now so i guess i'll just (laughs) say that like i think again uh so i'll just say that like i feel like death and like romantic love are very like very big themes of this this series Mm -hmm. in a way that they were not in percy jackson yeah, they were definitely there in Percy Jackson, but they are, like, much more center stage here. Although I wonder if that's maybe just, like, a function of these being, like, more consciously, like, YA books than Percy Jackson. Like, the, but at the point these were coming out, the tropes were a lot more codified. There's a good chance that that's true. Um, if we're just taking these as, like, as their own item then I think I, like, agree with that. But it's I think it's more interesting when directly comparing it to Percy Jackson. Yeah, definitely. Like, the the places that these books are choosing to focus their thematic lenses on are are very different, uh, and I appreciate that. I remember when we started doing these books, when we said, oh, we want to make sure that this is very listenable to people who don't give a shit about Percy Jackson and didn't listen to those episodes. Listen, it's titled (laughs) episode 56 or whatever. It's fine. (laughs) No, to be clear, I'm not donkey on you. I'm just saying that that format's officially out the window at this point, I think. Yeah, that, I think that went out the window in book one. <laughs> Probably. Speaking, speaking of Waltz, this is just kind of a small thing, but I thought it was kind of funny that, like, when Carter is uh, talking about the bulls with Setney, and Setney uh-huh. is like, uh, oh yeah, they got, they got all the food they wanted, they had, like, weird cow harems, and they got slaughtered at 25, it was a pretty good life for them. And Carter was like, oh yeah, that sounds wonderful. Who, would, who wouldn't want a life where you get killed at 25? And I just think like, I mean, Walt probably. Yeah. That would be like a net gain of like 10 years for him. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he, he died. He's, wait, wait, how old is Walt? Uh, I assume like, like, oh, he's slightly older than Carter, isn't he? So is he like 16? Something like that. I guess Anubis is also supposed to be sixteen. There's a, a little. That's a little bit of a weird age gap. From between, a little, little bit. Uh, even ignoring the god thing. Even ignoring the actually, he's thousands of years old. Like but the, in the, the body thir- of a sixteen-year-old. Thirteen-year-old and sixteen-year-olds just like if I had saw that in real life, I'd be like, eh, I don't. No. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, that aside, yeah, like. This is, I guess, one of those moments that would not be as, like, funny if, like, on the next chapter... Walt doesn't uh, die. <laughs> yeah, he dies. Uh, God, it's it's good. Uh, the Setney continues to be a delight here. Setney is continuously very funny throughout these chapters. And we also, like, like, like the last set, we get that really funny scumbag element while also getting glimpses at, like why he's like that uh-huh like the i love the whole section in chapter 12 with like him discussing his daddy issues with ra but like yeah it would be pretty nightmarish if you like hated your dad and there are like fucking giant 60 foot statues of him everywhere yeah i like this a lot because he's very much projecting on carter but also using that projection to like try and manipulate him and like, well, what are your feelings really? In a way that Carter himself kind of hasn't examined. And like, because he hasn't like examined all of that, like he he's, it kind of feels like he's more open to that manipulation, even though it does not mm-hmm. ultimately work. Yeah, I, I don't totally buy that Carter does have those feelings. Right, no. Because like, just because like, um, Part of Setney's argument is like, oh, you know, your dad was a great magician, so you also became a great magician, and then he went and became a god. 
You know, you're the son of the famed and very talented magician that everyone talks about, Julius Kane. And like, we've never heard anyone talk about Julius. Amos talks about Julius sometimes. I think more so what he meant was that like Carter, first and foremost, is a nerd. And uh, his his dad is the king of the nerds and that he's like the world's leading Egyptologist. This is true. So I think that is specifically what Setna was referring to there. Uh, yeah, that so- makes sense. It just lands a little weirdly because, like, it's just not Julius's reputation and like him having any kind of prestige isn't something that's come up before. In fact, he kind of seemed like a weird outcast in the House of Life. Yeah, yeah, that's why I think it's specifically like his non his 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 non House of Life life uh, yeah. that he was referring to. Uh, and I think you're right that it does. The reason it comes off weirdly is because like. Like like we said, it's like set name trying like both projecting on Carter and also trying to manipulate him. Mm-hmm. But it shows a part of Setney's character here that like he's trying to get at Carter in a way that Carter just like even if he like maybe has some of those feelings, those are not like the feelings he has about his father. Mm-hmm. And Setney just like doesn't have that like sight. Like he doesn't have enough wherewithal to be like oh, well, obviously you don't feel this way about your dad. I'm going to feel at you a different way. Like, he's just like, oh, yeah, everybody, like, hates their dad, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I, not 100% on how Carter reacts to it, but in terms of what it does for Setney's character, I really like it. Definitely. I, and I'm glad that Carter, like, pretty immediately is like, well, no, that's not how I feel about my dad. Like, he's he's like, well, do I feel that way? I've never felt that way before. So it's very obvious that it's, like, magical influence, I guess. Yeah, I, I, especially just, like, it's the bit where um, uh, Setney's talking about, like, oh, yeah, the running of the bulls, uh, that was actually based on an idea I had. And then Carter, like, suddenly goes into, like, brooding mode. And it's like, uh-huh. I remember being at the running of the bulls. My dad wouldn't let me go out to get gored by a bull. Uh-huh. I, I guess that could just be magical manipulation, though. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that's... um. I think that's a combination of like what is happening here, which is like the sort of magical manipulation, but also even though Setna is largely off base, there are some of those feelings that Carter like largely has not thought of or dealt with mm-hmm. like in his grief. Uh, and because like his dad is dead basically. Uh, and so he hasn't thought about that a lot, especially because that was a lot of his conflict in book one was like, how do I feel about my dad and who'd want to want to become from there? Uh, so I, I think it's like a really interesting scene to think about in that way, but largely, yeah. obviously because we've talked about it for like 20 minutes now. Uh, <laughs> um, otherwise, I don't know. I think that Zia, the, the revelation that Zia has is like hosting Capri or whatever. That's, that's pr- I was not expecting that to be where this was going. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that specifically, although it, it led to like kind of a, a weird thing for my specific brand of brain poison where uh-huh. i couldn't quite take it seriously okay but there's this really fucking stupid um one punch man video on youtube i think called like one punch stan okay uh and the the way it does like the the storyline like it abridges the storyline is that uh the scientist dude from the second episode right uh his plan is to uh, take revenge on the world for taking two girls, one cup off the internet. Uh huh. <laughs> by, you know that big monster he has in his underground lab, right? Uh, that is his dung beetle prototype, and he will turn the entire human race into dung beetles. I hate so this. that he can have his revenge. And Jane, so that's why- that's all I could think about while um, Zia was turning into a dung beetle and talking about rolling dung. <laughs> <laughs> God. Oh my god, you you have a very specific need to get your brain removed and replaced with another one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny though. Like it, it is meant to be funny that she is like it's it's both supposed to be like funny and I guess terrifying that she is possessed by a beetle, but also is like at the same time it's like, "Oh, but it's so fucked up." I got to roll some poo. Uh huh. But it's so fucked up because it's this like hugely powerful divine aspect of Ra. And I think it largely balances that pretty well. Yeah, I'd like, say so. I, I We get 
especially in the conversation that she and Carter have on the shore afterwards, you get, we get a lot of, like, her anxieties about, like, oh god, I'm being possessed by, like, the most ancient and powerful and dangerous god. Yeah, not, uh, again, I, I, I want to, like, try and not, like, do this, um, um, but I, I want to, like, I want to, I want to keep in mind and save for later, like, when we're talking about this, this series as a whole, like, what is the general, like, what is the difference being made between Percy Jackson, where the gods are their parents, and uh, the King Chronicles, where the gods largely just possess them? Uh, speaking of uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, uh, do we want to talk about one of the new gods from uh, these chapters, who is just uh, yeah. liter- literally a percy jackson the olympians character but also uh, is extremely funny so i don't care go on uh neef uh-huh. what's the fuck is her is that her name yeah yeah the um the hunter goddess uh-huh uh recast here as a batshit uh survivalist prepper uh-huh who thinks that she'll be immune from the apocalypse that apophis will bring because she has a bunker full of macrame stuff uh, designed to drive off any zombie army who comes for her. Because everything is a conspiracy made up by magicians, demons, and the tax man. Uh-huh. Which, I, 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 I love this shit. <laughs> no, it's great. It's very good. Like, this is the... This is the kind of, like, weird encounter that I like to see in these books. Mm-hmm. Um, like just like a a, a very like mo- quote unquote modern take on a god, I guess. Like, oh, yeah, she like <laughs> making her into a prepper specifically really <laughs> got me. Just like the fact that she is like beca- in- increasingly revealed as being like fucking Dilton Doily on Riverdale is <laughs> like just it- it's great, and I love everything that happens in this hunting in these hunting chapters. I, think I, it's like I a, love that, like, um, her first idea for a reward for if um, uh, Walt and Sadie pass her challenge is like, oh, you can have a spot in the bunker. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just... And, uh, and I think the, like, sequence itself, them running away from her, maybe it didn't have the greatest sense of, like, place, which you often complain about, but it also still felt relatively, like... I liked l- reading it because it was nice just seeing these characters like enact a clever plan yeah i the the sadie's plan is cool and clever enough that uh i overlook pretty much anything else about the sequence i like it when sadie has a cool plan definitely like the the ping-ponging back and forth is cool and like that kind of being supplemented with the increasing like oh walt is just about to fucking die (laughs) uh which is it, it is suspenseful um and her final like her fucking coup d'etat move i was very curious what you thought of sadie's uh description of the i guess urban jungle as it were uh this this made me realize that i'm a fucking walking stereotype okay (laughs) because uh i also really like jelly babies and ribena and most of the other things that sadie talks about in this section uh-huh. And that means that I am basically what uh, a whack-ass American author who refuses to do any research uh, thinks of when he tries to create a British girl character. <laughs> God, that's hilarious. You're, you're Sadie Kane. You're Sadie Kane. Uh. Listen, I, I like Sadie Kane. She's cool. That's a compliment. Oh, yeah, no, like, you know, you know those bits in overanalyzing Avatar? Uh-huh. Where, like something will happen and it just cuts to him chuckling and saying man i love soccer uh-huh. or something like that that was pretty much my attitude towards sadie throughout these chapters yeah man i love sadie si- sitting back chuckling going i like this character yeah it's it's just fun to watch her yeah and that's something that up till now up till now it's been a lot of what's been getting me through the series is just like oh i like watching these characters do their things I think especially Sadie, since at least, like, mid-Throne of Fire. Definitely. Carter. Carter's picking back up for me in these chapters. Uh, but I, I'm not sure how much of that is from just, like, how hilarious it is to watch him trip over his own dick. Uh-huh. Because, <laughs> like, 
I was screaming at the page when he when Setney's like, "Hey, could I give some orders to Bloodstained Blade?" And Carter, <laughs> without thinking, is like, "Yeah, sure. Why?" <laughs> he, he's the dumbest smart guy in the world. <laughs> and like, like you know, extenuating circumstances, his girlfriend did just explode. Uh huh. But it is also very funny to watch happen. Watch this fucking slow motion boat wreck. Yeah, yeah. It's God. I don't know. The, the, the Carter is just a bit of a disaster. It's also funny that like I feel like despite Sadie be we kind of talked about this last episode when it comes to like combining with the gods, Carter has been a lot more hardline than Sadie has. Mm-hmm. But in comparison to Sadie, he's the one who's really been like, I, I think tempted more so, like like he's being offered the temptation more. Because he's, uh, he's being tempted with, A, you get to be a god. B, you get to be the pharaoh. Yeah. And I think that's... I don't know. I think that's a good choice. I don't know. Like, I, I just think that's more interesting. That I, I think it's more interesting because he is the one who is more, like, solid on that, that he is the one who is being tempted mm-hmm. more. With, yeah, like, it, more... it makes sense that that would scale. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, like, a very obvious thing, but I appreciate it being there. Did, did we know that magic had cooldowns? Um, I mean, some of it did, right? Like, the Ribbons of Hathor, we already knew that those have, like, a year-long cooldown on them. Right, and we knew that, like, portals had a cooldown. But now, mm. and th- this isn't me complaining, because it's just, like, it's what, it's something that's happening a lot in this book, which is, like, little details that we didn't know before, but that are being, like, filled in slash retconned. That we can basically be like, I mean, yeah, that tracks with everything, so I guess it's fine. But like, we didn't know up until now that you could only say a magic word once every few minutes or whatever. Yeah, I definitely don't remember uh, hearing that earlier either. But like, it's it's not contradicting anything, so it's it should be all right. Definitely. Spe- oh, speaking I... of stuff like that, um, uh-huh. did we know that Kosh was claustrophobic? I think so, because in the first book, when they first go to the first gnome, um, mm-hmm. he d- describes a lot of those feelings when they have to, like, go underground. Oh, and go... you're right. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. I was mostly thinking, like, it didn't come up when they went into the Red Pyramid. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like that is where your claustrophobia would really flare up. But right, yeah, you're right. right. He he does freak out when they're going to the first gnome. Yeah, so that's a, a consistency. Good job. I, I want to point out something, going back a little bit to the conflict with Neef. Uh, huh. When they first meet her and Sadie is like, they're charming little, and she, and she has to stop, she says charming little buzzers, uh, which I'm pretty sure is her like stopping herself from calling them charming little buggers. Huh. <laughs> I noticed that. But you're right, that probably is what she was going to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, 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 I don't know, it's cute. I, I like the... Uh, it's a fun little writing thing. I appreciate funny, funny writing, funny detail, pen, paper, funny, 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 detail, little funny. Speaking of funny, I've come up with a theory about What's um, that? about why um, uh, Walt and Anubis didn't fill Sadian on the plan. Is it funny? I think this is a really fucked up practical joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they, well, they, they apparently get together and have chats behind her back. And I yeah. think it's very possible that at some point, they they would, Walt was just like, look, I'm only going to die once. We only get one shot to do something like this. And you, they, they didn't consider that it would break quite as badly as it did. You have to hand it to them. Like, <laughs> if I was going to die, but knew I could come back, I would, I would probably want to fuck with someone too. <laughs> And like literally, I, it's not even gone wrong. Almost died. Gone wrong. Actually died. <laughs> Resurrected. It. The thing is that like it has the cadence of a practical joke down to a T. <laughs> um, especially like from like Sadie trying to get details out of Walt and him like almost spilling something, but then like ah, we can talk about it later. because oh, he because he fucking. It's not just that he says, we'll talk about it later. He bursts out laughing. He specifically, he starts laughing at like what she's saying and then says, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, and then like Anubis <laughs> comes around and they're like laughing all buddy-buddy together. <laughs> and it's like, 
it really does read like obvious and obviously like Walt here was like okay everything isn't as urgent anymore I can slow down and it's okay if I don't like spill every little thing to her mm-hmm. um and so like I really can appreciate that from like Walt's perspective it's still so fucked all I'm saying is if this turns out that it genuinely was an on-purpose practical joke this book will get a 10 out of 10 for me absolutely absolutely <laughs> and they'll get an 11 out of 10 if she, been, if they, if she then breaks up with him <laughs> <laughs> uh, i guess speaking of romance do we want to talk about zia and carter here we do um we we on the show have often called for um justice for doughboy uh-huh. And right here, right now, I'm going to call for justice for Shabti Zia. Uh-huh. <laughs> because fucking Carter says to this version of Zia, oh, you know, I still owe you uh, a date to that food court. Uh-huh. Th- bro, you did not say that to her. You said that to the other Zia who was a different, distinct person who fucking died. Yeah, it's... <laughs> This yeah, is there a we different go. person. There we go, back to fucked up coping mechanisms and grieving. Uh, nobody but Zia is allowed- agrees with him. Yeah, nobody is allowed to <laughs> grieve properly in the series. But also, like, I, from her perspective, I get it, because, like, she got all of those memories, right? That's true. So, like, she kind of is that person, partially. But also, like, Carter, man, like, this is... Like, I guess it kind of is, like, maybe Zia would have made all those decisions if she had been there instead of Shati Zia. It's hard to know, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's just, like, strange and weird and kind of interesting in a way that I like. Like, I like thinking about. But I, I wish I wish that was actually, like, investigated a bit more. Like, I wish that Carter thought about it. Like, is the, is this the same? Like, we had that in the last book, but I feel like it was passed over pretty quickly. Yeah, I feel like that once it turned out that, like, Zia got the memories from the Shabti, that was kind of just like, oh no, they're the same thing now. Right. as far as it was examined, even though they are patently not the same person in the text. Right. It's just, it it reads as it, like, the equivalent of this would be Carter, like, his girlfriend dies and then he starts dating her twin sister and also (laughs) insists on calling her the name of the dead (laughs) ex-girlfriend. It doesn't read like that to me, but I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's it's like, very. That's funny. not how it comes across. But if like if you think about it for five seconds, that is kind of how it seems. Yes, yes, you're right. Oh God, this should be a Kane Chronicles video game. This should be open world. You should be able to go to across the gnomes. Uh, you Fuck, did cast... you did you see the um the the big extended trailer for that earlier? No, what was it like? Uh the plot. The plot is um, about the quote-unquote uh, quote, quote, quote unquote, goblins. They are controlling the banks. They are trying to rebel for even more power over wizarding society. I am not making this up. Oh, it's about the fucking stupid like goblin rebellion or goblin war or whatever they talk about those it, books. It's about the goblin rebellion. How, how do we combat the, the perception that the, the portrayal of goblins in these books is anti-Semitic? I know, let's make them evil and power-hungry and trying to take over the world. God. <laughs> uh, but I, I I, would love nothing more than an open-world Skyrim-style Kane Chronicles video game, unironically. You need to have it. Need to have it. I want to use... I want to use the power of fucking turning into a vulture to fly up a big tower and claim a checkpoint. <laughs> I mean, who, who knows? Maybe that... Um... Because we don't have any details on what the um, Netflix King Chronicles adaptation is going to be, right? Other than that's like going to be three movies now. Because they sometimes do like choose your own adventure things. Like they did they that, do. that Black Mirror thing, and they put the Telltale Minecraft games on there for some fucking reason. Right. So who who knows? Maybe that's that's the King Chronicles video game that we'll get. Maybe King Chronicles is like super popular after that comes out, and Possible. like everyone will be clamoring for that good good like direct to nintendo switch uh also the nintendo switch will be like three generations past by the time it's gone (laughs) but it'll still be the current nintendo console uh uh the direct to nintendo switch game uh and it'll be really bad and we'll play it for the show oh yeah speaking of really bad rick rioting games Uh uh-huh i remember absolutely ages ago um i think 
Erica was saying that um, she'd found like a version of the um, the Percy Jackson movie tie-in DS game. Yeah. And like she refused to tell me anything about it because she thought it was so fucking whack that we would need to play it for ourselves at some point. We'll play it for sure. Yeah, we completely forgot about that right up until now, but we will. We'll do like a let's play of it or something, maybe. Fuck yeah. Look, there's there's now two games that we need to do let's plays of. What's the other one? Uh, the other the other one is the official Unwise Girls video game. Yeah, uh, made uh, shout by outs- acclaimed developer um, uh, Strawberry Mouse. Yeah, shout outs to Marcy, uh, listener of the show, friend of the show, uh, mouse of the show, who created an official Unwise Girls video game. You can go and find that on uh, on her vods. Uh, I think that's just like Strawberry Mouse on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me double check that just in case. If you have ever uh, wanted to simulate the experience of having the Bast Head Pat Pass, uh, this is the video game for you. Uh, if you type in uh, Marcy Vod Channel, uh, channel with no E, uh, you will find you'll find it in the WarioWare DIY fundraiser video, uh, in like the last thirty minutes, I think. Uh, uh, it's very good. You can you can pat ahead. Hell yeah. Um, the fight scene between Carter and Bloodstained Blade. Oh, yeah, that was honestly pretty good. I thought that the, like, generally the action has been getting better in these books, and I think that is exemplified here. Definitely. It's like a pretty, like, a pretty, I guess it's like a, a pretty, like, desperate and gritty feeling, like, something that, like, oh, we're not just using big magic. This is mostly just Carter running away from a scary guy, and I, I it works pretty well. Like, Carter gets fucks up in this fight. Like, he gets his ribs broken, he gets lacerated in multiple places. Yeah. There's and, this part where it's like, oh, if my stomach was slightly larger, it would have been ripped, ripped open. Yeah, it's... And I'm, I'm kind of confused by this. I'm not unhappy with it, but, like, I was complaining earlier in the book about how toothless all the action felt. Like, especially um, the, the gnome in Texas getting vaporized right at the start. Uh-huh. Whereas this has, like, so much more impact to it. I almost wonder if it's maybe a case of, like, there's some kind of kid's book guideline that you can only have so much um, gore or blood or anything in it. And Rick was kind of saving up for this scene because he knew it would have the most impact here. I wonder. Like, I think that could be true. I also think that just, like, it could be just, like, poor... I don't want to say, like, poor decision-making, but, like, it could have just been, like, a straight-up misjudgment of what needed to be done in those first chapters to make the stakes feel heavy. Like... That's true. Uh, like, I, uh, like I, get, I, I get what you mean, but also, like, I don't know. I want, I want, I would love to know more if you if you have insider knowledge, and not insider, just, like, general knowledge <laughs> about, like, are there those kinds of guidelines for kids' books? Let us know. If anyone from Hyperion Publishing wants to go on the record, email us. Uh, very true. Please email us. Uh, we will. We, we, we will. You can be anonymous. Uh, we will not disclose anything. Uh, but except for whatever you want us to. Bit- bitching about the first couple of chapters aside, that that scene really hits. It's it's very good. Absolutely. Oh, and also, it's a really nice uh, long term payoff. Oh yeah. Bloodstained Blade has been like hovering around on the edges, very clearly side eyeing Carter and watching to kill him since book one. Oh yeah, so for yeah, sure. it, it just feels good to finally get a payoff to that thread. Yeah, because like we've basically the entire time that these like bound demons are on screen, and even like Shabti and stuff, they've mm-hmm. been wanting to kill Carter and Sadie. Uh, and so I think this feels like the appropriate amount of like I guess release of that tension now that one of them has the opportunity to do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so going back to Setney, him he like. I don't know. He, I I really enjoy how good he seems at like manipulating because like when he's talking about like oh I only ordered him to kill you because I want that was the only way I could get him to like get us to the land of demons which is where we need to go. Like I was like wow that makes kind of sense set. Like yeah. I was like and then I was like wait this fucking <laughs> I I am being tricked by Setne the reader. Yeah, it's it's genuinely very impressive that um Rick manages like make events play out in a way that don't feel contrived, but also allow for Setney to come up with a plausible explanation for what he was doing like that. Like, that's, yeah. that's a difficult balance to strike, and it works really well. 
it makes him a really believable like most fucked up guy in the world who's lived for <laughs> millions of years like he not millions thousands if that but uh like he yeah thousands i guess uh but like he's just so like so very charismatic like such a very charismatic character uh and i i'm i'm just so like i i guess i just really have to hand to rick for doing this doing this so well yeah and uh, another thing that like gives an impression of like how long he's been doing this shit for uh-huh is uh when he's taking carter and zia into the land of demons and he like he does this these intricate disguises for them gives them these like cool demon appearances and then for himself, he just puts on a T-shirt that says "Go Demons." Uh huh. It it's it's funny in and of itself, and it also kind of indicates like he's been around for so long that the demons probably just know him and know that he's evil and probably just chill with them. Right. So he doesn't get- need a disguise; he can just wear a T-shirt, and they won't care. <laughs> Right, it gives off the, it's the vibe of either like, oh, either he is like super powerful and he knows some cool t-shirt spell so he doesn't have to do that shit, or (laughs) what you said, or number three also is that none of them actually have to do it and he's just fucking with Carter and Sadie, (laughs) Uh, not Carter and Zia rather, Uh, because that would also be very funny. That would also track. Uh, It's just like, damn, I don't know, Sydney really coming at the last minute to steal the show. If there's one thing we've learned from these books is that even in the depths of uh, quite mediocre ones, we can always enjoy uh, Rick writing a charismatic bastard. That's right. That's right. God, remember fucking... Uh, what was his name? Oh. Oh, that that really slimy guy who was so cool. Mad Claude. Uh, no, not Mad Claude. And Percy oh? Jackson. Uh... There were a lot of really slimy guys in Percy Jackson. He was like the lawyer. He came to negotiate with him at the end. Oh, Prometheus. Prometheus. He the, He's like a very Prometheus type kind of. Like, I really enjoyed that scene. I really enjoy it. I don't know. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, the way that Prometheus kind of um, justifies trying to get Percy to surrender at the end, that does have the same kind of vibe as how Setney justifies trying to kill Carter. Definitely, yeah. Also, I, I can't not mention this. Uh-huh. Carter does get um horny bonked. Uh-huh. Literally, like his his conversation with Zia where they're getting all romantic with one another is literally bookended by the word bonk because <laughs> Setney smashed his head off a, a plank. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh god, there's just like speaking of just like good comedy, everything with like Setney rolling around in the fucking mummy rap and like the image of him like falling off the boat is it's, it's all very good like he's just like wriggling around on the beach not able to see anything <laughs> like for all he knows like about to get stabbed or something while uh-huh. carter and zia are just like 30 feet away calmly having a picnic is very good yes oh god yeah i don't have a lot more to say about these um but I don't. I'm still real. I'm really still enjoying the the like what we're getting from this. Yeah, it's, the it, the comedy's really been hitting the last set of chapters. The character stuff, aside from some questionable choices, is mostly pretty solid. Yeah, we have two episodes of this left. Uh, so like we'll be finishing pretty soon, and I hope that it continues at this like quality. Fingers crossed. Oh, one last thing. <clears throat> Please. Uh, I just want to point out that Carter gets very judgmental about all the traps that Setney puts in uh, the tomb. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like Setney was well within his rights to set those traps. Absolutely. Uh, I, spe- I mean, just thinking about it, even in the context of the series, it was a good idea to set those traps. Because just think how much trouble could have been saved if Desjardins, like, great-grandfather or whatever, had just gotten nailed by a spike pit while he was going for the <laughs> Rosetta Stone. God, Yeah. <laughs> Oh god, wait, there's the fucking part where Setney is just like such an asshole. He's like, Oh, this one this 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 curse will turn you into a dwarf. I hate those fucking small guys. Wait, it's yeah. Like, I, yeah, th- that's fucked up. What's even weirder and more fucked up is that Carter doesn't say, Hey, fuck you, one of my best mates is a dwarf. Yeah, he just gets pissed off like Oh god. Yeah, he just gets like pissed off kind of, kind of internally, but I guess he's like, Oh, we can't make this guy angry or whatever. Uh I don't he he should have said something for sure. Carter, bad ally. <laughs> I'm glad uh, that later on he just kind of threatens to kill Setney with every alternate sentence. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, so I think I think that does it for us today. 
I think that does it. Uh, if you'd like to reach the show, you can check us out on Twitter at Girls. There you can find our links to our personal Twitters, our Discord server, uh, everything you want, including our Patreon. If you want to support us, you can go uh, leave a five-star interview. Uh, you can tell your friends. That one also really helps. And we, uh, and um, you can support us monetarily on Patreon. Uh, for $1 a month, you get the Discord role of Whittle Dobying. Uh, for three dollars a month, you get the Discord role of Big Ba Energy, uh, as well as all of our bonus content. I believe soon for that we're going to be watching uh, Gods of Egypt. Oh Christ! Uh, yeah, we unfortunately had to skip the bonus episode last week, but um, the last one we talked about uh, dead authors that we would like to have a chat with. Uh, the It.io TTRPG for Trans Rights in Texas bundle. And uh, Homestuck. That's right. Always a little bit of Homestuck. Uh, if that Unless repels you... <laughs> Listen, if, if you don't want there to be Homestuck, let us know. <laughs> Pay us $5 a month and tell us that you don't want there to be Homestuck. We will stop doing Homestuck. Uh, maybe. And for $5 a month, you get uh, the Discord uh, role and the per- the privilege of the Bast Headpat Pass. Uh, use it wisely, please. And also, if if you have, if you get the game, if you download the official WarioWare on Wise Girls game, uh, know that that is not a real valid Bast Headpat Pass. Uh, it can only be used that one time on the artificial Bast. It's uh, just a simulation. It's not. It's nothing like the real thing. The joy of having the real Bast Headpat Pass surpasses right. e- even that amazing game. That's right. Uh, and uh, you also get our bonus content, and uh, thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I'd also just like to, I'm just, I just like to put out like an open call to uh, listeners because I'm curious. Uh, the average like number of listeners that we get for this show per week is like maybe about 50 plays. Uh, last week that tripled. Don't know yeah. why. If if you're new around here, uh, would you mind letting us know where the fuck you came from? Because yeah. we didn't make like a post about the show or anything. Uh, the number just got very big. Uh, yeah, we super appreciate it. Oh, definitely. If you if you made it this far, uh, good on you. <laughs> Thank you to all our new listeners as well. Yeah. And uh, as we always say, at the end of every single episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye.